You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week we caught up with Maxim Schulze, head bartender of the American Bar at the Savoy. We talk about his start in a nightclub in Hamburg, working in Saudi Arabia with non-alcoholic cocktails, his experience in working in Mozambique hospitality, and now his position, of course, of head bartender of the American Bar. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. Uh, my name is Maxim Schulte, originally from Germany and now working in the American Bar as a head bartender. Thank you so much for uh, finding the time from your busy schedule to be here with us today. No, thank you for having me. I know it's a uh, Formula One season here in Singapore, so you've got a lot of fast cars around. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. I mean, free training is over, first one, second one, I hope I can still peak a bit and then the shift has to start. But um, I think this. I looked where they set up the screen, it's right in front of me, so I'm not going to miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> So we have quite a lot of ground to cover, um, so let's get right into it. Uh, First of all, how did you get into bartending? Um, Yeah, quite quite an unusual way. Unusual way? You can't say that. But So when I was 18, uh, or before I was turning 18, I wanted to figure out, you know, I needed some extra cash, obviously. I was still in high school and need some some money on the side. And um, not far away from my home, um, in Hamburg, so a bit south, so in the countryside, there was this nightclub that was open uh, Fridays and Saturdays. So for me, that was perfect, you know, to start a bit, I don't know, like serving some beers, some long drinks or whatsoever. So I started there actually as a barback, sort of just refilling fridges, clearing glasses from the floor and, you know, all the dirty work basically that has to be done every single day. Um, and got really into sort of that you know lifestyle work if you want um you know you have a lot of fun guests around you some also not so fun guests around you but you know it's a great it's a great environment the team was really funny there and um after a year i think i started working in that small cocktail bar that they had the cocktails were well i would say pretty awful but sort of that's what started me and thought you know i think i might want to pursue that a bit longer but then I did a sort of two degrees in, in hospitality management. But um, in Germany, when you start working in a hotel and you do your degree, you would have to um, do a two and a half to three year sort of training. Um, you go to school, to hospitality school and work same time. I have to go through all the departments. It was quite clear that I wanted to stay in F&B and the bar was where I immediately found passion for it. So you think you're a, a, a hotel person, per se? I never worked in an alone standing bar, really, besides that weird countryside nightclub <laughs> that I started in. Um, so I was always working in hotel bars. What is it that attracted you to, like, what is it that you like about hotel bars? I think it's great that you have a bit of this, um, I don't want to say intimate, but quite close relationship to especially regular guests of the hotel, you know, and... There are plenty of alone standing bars that do amazing service, which you definitely could compare to a five-star hotel service. But it's always that little bit special, I think. When you walk into in a hotel, um, you know, if you walk into the plaza or if you walk, um, for example, into the Savoy or into the Claridges and you're in this beautiful lobby. And I don't know, it has always sort of made me a bit more excited to work to work in a place like that. What was your first uh, luxury hotel experience? Um, I mean, it was a four and a half star design hotel, but that was the one I started working in Hamburg. So I did my um, apprenticeship, so my training there. Um, was the the George Hotel in Hamburg, close to the Ulster, massive lake in Hamburg, mm-hmm. if anybody has ever been. Um, really nice design hotel, um, sort of modern but a bit old school English style, if you want and a uh, beautiful small restaurant, Italian restaurant, and um, just a stunning bar, a little bit of a rooftop bar as well, whenever there was good weather, you know. And um, yeah, the service level was, I think, very, very high. A lot that I learned there I used throughout my entire career. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always think back how would my manager would have done it at that point of time. And a really, really, really great team. I learned there loads. We know you very well from your contributions to the scene here in Asia. When did you 
decided that Asia was going to be the next destination for you? When I was in um, Switzerland, um, doing my bachelor in hospitality management, um, I thought, you know, I'm doing this international degree now, so I want to use it internationally. So I wanted to go somewhere and I'm, I had to make a decision, do I want to maybe go to Americas or do I want to see Asia? Um, and I really did a career move, which I thought is good for me because Asia seemed at that point of time to give you quite a fast learning curve and a fast career growth. And, you know, most of the hotels around the world are built still in Asia. Um, so I thought, yeah, that's that's the way to go. And um, so I chose basically, well, I tried to get into Hong Kong because I thought I've never been to Asia, actually, at that point of time. So I thought Hong Kong might be a bit like, you know, Asia for beginners, Asia for dummies, yeah, because yeah, yeah. everybody speaks English and it's common tongue there. And, you know, I thought that might be that might be a good place to start. Um, it's and, the same thing for Singapore, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. So it was Singapore, Hong Kong. And then everybody was like, nah, Singapore, the visas are quite difficult. You know, try Hong Kong. So I applied, I think, in every five-star hotel in Hong Kong. And what came back to me with um, a training. So I was allowed to do an F&B training in the JW Marriott. Yeah, and that's basically how I ended up there. How was life in Hong Kong at the time? Um, you know, quite challenging. Um, was very new to me, first time living outside of Europe. Um, I was earning 6,000 Hong Kong dollars. How, how much is that? Um, that was at that point of time 600 euros, roughly what yeah uh, how did you pay for rent um yeah that was like <laughs> impossible um i was sort of lucky at that time i moved there with my girlfriend that well now ex-girlfriend um that uh, i got to know in, in university and we got together there and she was from hong kong so her parents had an apartment there which very fortunately we were allowed to use Otherwise, I would have possibly not gone there because with 6,000 Hong Kong dollars, you can't even afford public transport, really. That's um, crazy, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so expensive. And it got even more expensive now. I mean, that's 2013 I arrived in Hong Kong. It's way cheaper. Now it is ridiculous. Yeah, and like I've seen where uh, the places where some of our colleagues live there and they're like incredibly small. I mean, yeah, it is really tiny. I think Singapore has a bit of a better, of a better sort of value for money. Um, I think you pay here obviously high rents, but you get a bit more for it. Yeah, I think. I think me and my girlfriend we actually pay more or less the same amount of money we used to pay in London, mm. but we got a much much larger flat. Like I mean, yeah, London, London is not cheap. Yeah, L- London crazy. is brutal. Yeah, but in London we had a room in a flat, while here we have a, a flat with two rooms. So you know. Yeah. Yeah, and so how long were you work for uh, JW Marriott for? Um, I was there on a six-month internship mm-hmm. um, in F&B, and I actually had secured myself a position for management training, but they could not extend the visa. Um, it got rejected by the government four times. So I was there for six months, and then I waited another two and a half months, actually, after that, for sort of that they get this visa approved which they never got. So I said at a certain point, look, I can't wait any longer. I don't have money anyway, but it doesn't get better by not receiving any salary as well. Mm -hmm. So I have to move on somehow, can't wait. Um, And then the regional office got me a job in um, Bangkok. Also as a trainee, again, um, which you earn even less in Bangkok. (laughs) Uh, um, um, Yeah, fortunately, during my time there, um, I was... Um, I asked to get put into a team for reopening a restaurant. Um, so they've re- renovated the JW Steakhouse and we made it into a project called Flint. Um, and I said, look, I want to be at the bar there. Where I met um, Bryson, uh, which is quite a Hong Kong legend. Mm-hmm. Um, and he sort of took me under his wing and um, showed me a lot, um, obviously taught me a lot and, and got me into the Hong Kong bar scene really fast. Like going out one night with Bryson, you know everyone really. Um, he gets stopped every 10 meters on the street. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, luckily, um, the regional office put quite a lot of attention on there and they sort of um, saw, you know, the boy wants to work, mm-hmm. I guess. And then they said, look, we have something. There's an outlet in Bangkok, brand new. Um, we really need a bit of support there. 
there's a good guy, um, Blake Walker, who who can teach you quite a fair bit. Um, so why don't you go there? Started again as a trainee uh, in Bangkok then. <laughs> um, yeah, and sort of worked then my way up from there. What was Blake's position at the time? Because Blake works just here in the JW Marriott as a food and beverage director at the moment, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. at that point of time, he was director of beverage and bars um, in that hotel in, in, in Bangkok, in the Marriott in Tonglo. Um, but also, I think at that point of time, he was a bit part-time Asia-Pacific director of beverage and bars. So, so he did a lot of traveling and, and started sort of that role that he afterwards in full-time had. So I think we worked a year together in Bangkok. Um, and then he started in Hong Kong full-time in the regional office as the director of beverage and bars. So he's been around for a while, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he started in Bangkok in 2013, I believe. That's crazy. So sort of the same time when I started in Hong Kong, he started in Bangkok, I believe. Yeah. What made you move from Bangkok? Um, the work environment there was very challenging. In what um, respect? We, that outlet was... Um, it's a rooftop terrace, um, four stories. It was, at that point of time, already busy as hell. Um, we reached a staffing level. I think the lowest point was 38%. Um, like, it, it was so intense, the work. And the hotel, unfortunately, um, sort of failed to get the right support, really. Um, there was a wave of resignations. Um, we couldn't fill the positions and there was some conflicts with the ownership. It was real, it was a tough school. Um, I'm very grateful for that though, looking back at it, because I learned a tremendous amount. Um, and if somebody tells me, you know, oh, you know, an eight hour, an eight hour shift is really hard work. And I say, okay, like try to do a 12 hour shift at 45 degrees with a suit on, um, doing a thousand two hundred covers, then, then you know, what's, what's really busy, you know? Um, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Um, the team there was absolutely stunning. My bar team, um, and culturally you learn so much. I mean, you know, for mm. sure by now, um, working with different cultures just makes you grow as a person so much. And, um, yeah, it was a really, really good year. Really intense, but really good year. Anyway, so but I moved because I also got an offer. Um, so the opening GM of that hotel that I worked four months with, I think, and then he left. Um, he moved to the Ritz-Carlton in um, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Supposed to be there, the opening hotel manager. Um, and um, he came around the corner and said, look, do you want to work in Saudi Arabia? And I was like, no. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> like, you don't have alcohol there. I'm really into bars, you know? Um, and then he, we had an hour-long conversation on the phone, and he was like, look, we have, I think, an amazing opportunity here to actually turn a culture around when it comes to non-alcoholic beverages. Um, and he made that offer sound really attractive. And then I thought, you know what? Actually, that sounds quite cool. Definitely worth an experience. And I'm ticking... I thought really career, I'm ticking so many boxes. I'm ticking pre-opening of the five-star luxury hotel. I'm ticking Ritz-Carlton. So I'm moving from Marriott up to Ritz-Carlton. And I'm moving up a position. And I get Middle East experience. So it was just four boxes that I could tick with one move. And I was mm -hmm. like, you know what? I think let's do that. Um, resigned. Got then told that unfortunately the opening is postponed by nine months. And I'm like, oh, that's not cool. So I was basically in Bangkok without a job, not knowing when the next one would start. Um, and then sort of was fishing around what else was, what else was there. Fortunately for me, um, a former professor from a university in Switzerland needed some help for a project that he was doing in Mozambique, in Africa. He was like, hey, you can come work with me. Um, F&B, I need a lot of help training the people here. You know, you stay as long as you can. And whenever that thing is opening, you know, you just move out there, which I then did. And that was an amazing experience as well. How long did you work there for? Oh, I think it was eight months. What, yeah, what eight, were eight the challenges months. you had in Mozambique? Because that sounds like a very challenging market, does it? Uh, well, I mean, there is really no market. If you think about it, um, it was for um, Anantara. So Anantara Avani, that group. And... Um, you know, they had three resorts in Mozambique, one in the south, two up north. Um, you know, the north is Pemba. That is a city that has, I think, 
three or four roads that that is an actual road and not just sand. Um, it's the third poorest country on the planet. Over 75%, I think, of the population um, is illiterate. Um, you know, it's crazy. You couldn't start with, oh, this is a Cabernet Sauvignon and this is a Merlot. You said, that's red wine and this is white wine. What's the difference? And then you try to explain. Like, it's a whole other level. And you have very different challenges there. Like, your main challenge is theft, is people getting malaria and they can't come to work. Like, they call you that they're sick or because they have a flu, because they're close to dying. You know, that, and that's quite, you know, to grasp it, to understand that at the beginning, it's like, okay, yeah, okay, sure, you're sick. Like, go to the hospital, get some malaria pills, um, you know, see you when you're ready. Um, not just, you oh, I have flu. That's um, crazy. Yeah, it is, it is, but it was very weird at the beginning. But you, I mean, like to everything, you got to be used to it, really. But, you know, the country is beautiful and the people are amazing. They're so friendly. Um so it was again what an experience um it was good for me as well because i had to basically work out this entire training program for a new opening island resort and train the guys and you know building these foundations of giving a good training and you know getting the feedback from the people and see actually that they sort of picked something up that was amazing especially because it was really young at that point of time so 9 months in uh, 9 months later you managed to land your job in uh, Jaffa, you said? Um, it was supposed to be Jeddah, but then that hotel was just, that was uh, a mystery when that will ever open. So basically that um, hotel manager... So did they open eventually or not? Really? Um, yeah, but when I left Saudi Arabia. So even one and a half years working then in Riyadh, in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Riyadh, um, they were still not open. So that's the thing with openings, you know, like sometimes you quit for an opening and then you end up having to wait uh, an um, ungodly amount of time. I mean, it was in, in total, it was two and a half years. So is it open now? Yeah, it's open okay. now. Oh, well, I guess it's still open. <laughs> um, so anyway, so he, he transferred to Riyadh because they needed a GM because the GM there was leaving. So he was sort of the interim GM and said, look, whatever we wanted to do in Jeddah, we can also do here. And then we started. Um, it was a rough first six months. I mean, you know, you're trying to implement a bar concept and, you know, we're not talking about virgin pina coladas. We're talking about really complex non-alcoholic drinks. Not having seat label icon or something around, you know, like you have to do everything yourself. It was seven outlets. Seven outlets, six drinks per menu. It was massive. Um, a team that has never seen a cocktail shaker before or a jigger. Um, I think in the entire place there was one bar spoon. You can't buy bar equipment in Saudi Arabia. And this is where the challenge... can't buy it? Like, there is no bar equipment. They have no need for it. Because... Well, I mean, it makes sense, I they guess. They don't yeah. do cocktails, <laughs> really. And, and, you know, so we got stuff flown in from the US, from Canada, from Europe, like from everywhere. And um, that was a big challenge to get equipment. Try to find a soda siphon in there. Impossible. Yeah, it was, yeah. came from Dubai, you know. So, for example, I wanted to have nitro coffee on tap. You can't get a tap in Saudi because it basically displays beer and that sort of shows alcohol so you can't get a tap even if you would put coffee in your cack so you know there are like all sorts of challenges that you have to sort of work around and you're waiting three weeks for an answer and then say no nah, impossible so oh, man now how are we doing this um so luckily um I worked with um a consultant for non-alcoholic beverages or oh, i mean he does everything but he's a specialist for non-alcoholic beverages his name is michael eistet and uh, he has a company he's called the herbal um brilliant guy um worked for gorgeous group a long time which is you know um Huge, I mean, pretty right? big uh-huh. um same did blake walker by the way mm-hmm. um so and he he came with boatload of of um weird ingredients as well you know i've never heard about these kind of stuff before um, very botanical herbal stuff, distillates, high, high um, um, absolutes, uh, resins from trees and stuff. Um, the recipes were incredible. Um, so I had to get all this stuff together, basically get the team sorted out, and then he came um, and did some training with us as well. And, and sort of we built then on top of that. So we opened then an outlet afterwards as well, where then I did the recipes. Um, and I still, until today, use ingredients that we use there. 
because they're just so unique. Like what you can achieve with an aniseed and a fennel um, absolute or oil. Like it's incredible. You can basically one of one of the drinks was basically tasting like a non-alcoholic um, Pernod with you know juice and soda. Just uh, stunning. That like, sounds awesome. Yeah, man. I mean you can do. There's so so many ways of of using flavor. Um, we did so many honeys, you know, differently infused with resin, with frankincense, with we smoked uh, sort of an Arabic iced tea. We smoked with bahur. So what they use, you know, to um, you can see this maybe when you're in Dubai or somewhere, and they, you know, the gentlemen, they've got the smoke under their, um, you know, under their. Um, uh, I don't know how this house is actually called. The rats yeah, bandana <laughs> over the hat. Um, I don't want to be disrespectful. I just don't know the name. Um, you know, uh, yeah. So we smoked drinks with that, and it's just yeah, it was it was great. So so much training, so much quality control, and I think this is where I really developed that eye for every single thing has to be always perfect and tasting every ingredients all the time. And basically, we're just walking around, um, tasting everything every single day, training back. What's this here and there? It was it was a massive task, but one year in, it was pretty smooth. The guys were doing really great, and uh, now it became such a huge business that they do outside caterings. No way. Um, yeah, yeah, like it's massive. I think they hired people just to do prep. But well, you mentioned seven outlets. How big was the hotel? Um, it's a massive 550 room palace. It's called the Ritz Carlton Palace. Okay. Um, uh, built by the by the royal family um, is right opposite of the diplomatic quarters. So you have anything that go, comes into Saudi Arabia, which is a politician, will stay there. Is this the hotel where they locked people up? Yeah, it was yeah. turned into a prison later on. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I was luckily gone by that time, but it was then the royal prison. Yeah, it's now back open as a hotel. But it was, uh, yeah, short time it was a prison. That, that must have been quite a brutal time to work in there. Can you imagine, like, working in a five-star hotel prison? Yeah, you know, and you're dealing with the royal guard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the prisoners are all princes, you know. Yeah. I mean, if consider, I think they're quite well-behaved prisoners. But, um, you know, you have, like, 200 royal guards basically flooding your lobby and your restaurants. And there is nobody from outside. That must have been mega stressful. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, at some point you decided to seek more challenges and is this when you moved to Macau? Yeah, you know, I mean, lifestyle in Saudi Arabia is not that easy as a bachelor, you know, as a single male. You, most of the restaurants you can't go because they only have family and female sections. It's, you know, segregated. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that is a bit tricky, obviously. Um, there is quite a language barrier when you live there. Um, English in general is not bad, but... There's also a lot of places where you just can't go because you can't speak Arabic. Um, and yeah, it, it was it was after one and a half years, I really thought, you know, I think it's time to, you know, to go some to go somewhere else. I wanted to go back to Asia. And at that point of time, I, want, I made the decision that I want to be in charge of one outlet and try to achieve something with that outlet basically mm -hmm. leading the outlet into something um i was searching a bit and then again mr blake walker came along and said look there's this beautiful bar in macau why don't you go over and visit hong kong see some friends quickly pop over to macau have a look at that bar and uh you know if you like it you go for it and the bar in macau is beautiful the ritz carlton bar uh, in, in macau is stunning so I was, fell immediately in love with the place and um, thought, you know, I think there is something that we can do here. Um, I think there's something we can achieve. Not knowing about the Macau bar market, because I thought, for sure, it's not like Hong Kong, but it's really close to Hong Kong, so it can't be that far away um, in terms of drinking culture, which was obviously a big mistake because it is very different. Yeah, but yeah, I wanted to, wanted to come back to Asia and that just seemed to be a perfect move staying with the company, having this beautiful bar in a stunning hotel as well, um, close to friends in Hong Kong. It seemed like, yeah, makes sense. Let's go. So Macau is like the Chinese version of uh, Vegas on steroids. Uh, am I right? Like in terms of like gambling and... Uh... Um, it is the gambling capital of the world. Uh -huh. I think they do six to seven times more revenue than Las Vegas. And um, the ga it's all about gambling there. 
you have Las Vegas is more about the entertainment. It's fun. Gambling is displayed as fun. In Macau, gambling is serious business. Like you go on a on the gambling floor, there's not like people shouting and screaming and like having drinks. No, no, no. They sit there and they gamble. Hardcore gamble. Hardcore. Yeah. So in that case, very different. Of course, you have your nightclubs, and you know, uh, the nightlife entertainment is there, um, but it's it's not even close to other places in Asia or all the world. So the majority of your clientele in Macau was uh, Chinese. Um, funny how no, because um, when the when the gamblers actually then do celebrate a win or they have to drink because they lost too much, then they prefer more private rooms. Uh, our bar didn't have a private room, so we did not get too many um, um, mainland Chinese. We got more the people who live in Macau. So we got a lot of the expats that, that live in Macau and work there, um, and then Macanese, mm-hmm. um, and tourists that come from Hong Kong. I would say that was our main clientele. Did you find it challenging to adapt to the culture? Um, well, I've experienced sort of the Chinese culture before when I was in Hong Kong. Um, that was not really new to me. Um, what was really new to me is, you know, the masses. You know, go, you go through, through the shopping malls, the casinos and so on, and it's just thousands of people. That was a bit new to me. And it is very loud, obviously. But no, I think, you know, the, I think Macanese and Hong Kongese, fairly close. I think they're, they're quite similar. What was the brief uh, around the bar? What was the main concept and how did you implement it? So when I arrived, the menu was a bit, I don't want to, it, it was nice drinks, but a bit all over the place. Um, I think what, what the bartenders like to do, um, they didn't have a manager there for a really long time, which, you know, obviously never really helps. Um, so at the beginning, I thought, okay, I want to change the menu format, but just don't have the time and the resources now. We need to attack very fast and we need to, um, we need to put a couple of drinks together, 20 drinks, you know, that actually reflect what people want to have. Um, so we did, I analyzed the sales report over the last year and saw that I think the most sold drink after gin and tonic was mojitos. But sort of they said, oh, we are a gin-focused bar with like 25 gins or something. So we have a gin-focused bar and they had this gin and tonic trolley where you come to the table and then you get your nice, you know, gin and tonic in a balloon glass like in Spain and so on. Um, so that was the bar. The bar was known for that within Macau. So I thought, okay, cool. Let's do a couple of drinks. So basically twisting a couple of drinks, twisting a Negroni because that was a top seller as well. Um, we did a gin-based sort of mojito version. Um, obviously a bit more shishi in there not just gin, mint and lime um, but you know trying to give them give the guests what they ask for basically just as a signature um, and then I said okay we are famous for our gin cards but then other bars around the, around town were trying to do the same so I was like okay how can we put a stop to that so I just bought 150 gins 150 yeah more <laughs> how did you, you go about sourcing them what um, was the main criteria so first um i got i think it was 50 or 60 gins in that were all available on the market just like across across just the go pond buy and get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah literally just go buy get it um so that was really fast and then i sourced um i think 70 gins or 60 gins with two local suppliers and i said okay um these gins are not available in asia i need them so get them for me from Europe, from Africa, from uh, the, the States, from wherever they were produced and sold. Said so I need two bottles each. And I need some really rare stuff. I need some, you know, booze from the 60s and so on and so on. Ah, so you also had uh, some vintage spirits? Yeah, vintage gin. Uh-huh. Like we, we focused on vintage gin. We didn't have vintage Campari or, uh-huh. or, or something. Um, and I said, look, now... You know, we have a couple of years peace and quiet with challenging us on our gin selection. Um, and that worked really, that worked really a treat because, I mean, our average check was through the roof because obviously you can charge more for these mm-hmm. rare gins and so on. Um, average check was through the roof. Um, uh, actually, the amount of gin and tonics we sold in percentage went back because 
people really enjoyed our cocktails. So the cocktail sales went up. Wine sales dropped basically to a minimum. Um, so it was pure gin and tonic and cocktail bar, which was exactly what I wanted, really. Uh-huh. Um, got a couple of craft beers in just in case, you know, you want to like just try to make it a bit more premium. The, the room looks stunning. You need to sell something nice, I think. Agreed. Um, yeah, and that was sort of the first step. And this is how we then rolled with it. Um, and, you know, it's funny to say that obviously it was nothing new to the bartending world, but for Macau, that was fairly new. We started barrel aging cocktails and people were going crazy about it because, oh, you know, I have seen this somewhere before, but never here in Macau. So, yeah, there you go. So, barrel aged Negronis were selling like crazy. Um, and, yeah, so, you know, we, we sort of established ourselves, I think, in the market in Macau to be one of the prime spots where you should go for a drink. And we had live band every single day, which is also great. You know, entertainment was good. Um, I would like to say beverages were good. Um, so we had a good pedigree. Obviously, team changed around also slightly. But I had really strong um, uh, ladies on the floor, like charming, great service, had good bartenders with me in the bar. And it was just a good setup. And lucky us all that hard work and push sort of resulted into something as well. And it was really nice. What was the high point of your time uh, at Macau? We were, I mean, we got a lot of guest bartenders and we tried to arrange for ourselves some guest bartending. Nobody knew us, obviously, so it was quite difficult. So I had to sort of play a bit on my relationships and ask friends like, do you think that we can do a guest shift in your bar? <laughs> Maybe. Um, just, yeah, please. Just just to get the name out somehow. It's like, can we please? We work for free. Um, so, um, and then it was time for the first Asia 50 when, when I was there. And we were like, it would be insane if we actually be in. Like, just, you know, the one to watch or... It, you know that, that we never thought that that's possible because it's too short amount of time and nobody even knew Macau existed as a place mm-hmm. so why would they all in a sudden now do this but then we got people guests from Singapore over that didn't know us we didn't know them and they were like oh you know in Singapore they're talking about this bar from Macau and I was like you're joking like that's that's not possible like you are you're just trying to be nice you know but then we never got an email that we are actually in Asia 50. Um, so we thought, okay, you know, it didn't work out. Maybe next year, you know, let's try to push hard. Um, and then the email got lost. So a week, I think two weeks before, somebody said, oh, by the way, we've received a weird email from like a company called 50 Best. They said, apparently you're in some list. It's like, you are joking. <laughs> Booked holidays super fast and like yeah, yeah that was that that was a great moment. That was like you know, actually the work pays off sometimes. That's like the team flipped completely because we thought it's not it's just impossible. Yeah, but it's one of those things that you know, like when it happens, like it also takes time for it to sink in, right? Like yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it was at the beginning I thought, nah, this this can't be real. There's maybe a mistake or or something, something. I was obviously deep down, I was always hoping that this sort of miracle will happen. Um, and then when it's, yeah, as you say, when this, then actually the time you're like, nah, 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 that kind of can't be. So, but it was, you know, the bar, the bar was open for what, two years at that time? Yeah. And I was, I was there for eight or nine months, I think. So, yeah, it was, it was great, you know. And then, like, um, the bartenders there, but they were doing competitions, so they were starting to get recognized in Hong Kong as well, which for us, obviously, is the closest market, mm-hmm. so that's the one that mm-hmm. we really wanted to, wanted to uh, sort of capture mm-hmm. and attack. Um, and you have to be always quite strategic with these kind of things, especially when you're unknown, you know, you need to, you need to get sort of your allies, or you need to convince people, oh, you know what, come, come over to Macau, like, I get you the ferry ticket, just have a look, just have a look. And then obviously we've got guest shifts, Antonio Lai, you know, the king of Hong Kong. Um, uh, Dr. Lai, yeah, he's still alive. Yeah. He was in Singapore here not long ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, in, he's in London soon. Ah, okay, cool. Yeah, um, yeah so it was, it was an amazing ride. Amazing ride. So let's fast forward uh, to London, American Bar. First of all, how did you manage to get the job? 
Um, actually, I received a really cryptic email from Declan once. Where, like, the topic was... I don't even know if I'm supposed to say that. Um, the topic was Eric Lorensk, the name. And then um, in the email, it was just like a one-liner. Let's have a call. And I was like, what is this about? Like, like because Eric just had a guest shift with us some months before. And I was like, did something go wrong? Like, like do I have to justify myself now? Or like, they give did, malaria some, like did something Eric. happen or something? <laughs> did we poison him? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm free. Let's call that time. <laughs> so, and uh, I mean, you know Declan, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and then we had this call and I was there. The call lasted a bit over an hour. And I think I recognized in like minute 50 what he was on about. And I was like, what, really? He said, nah, 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 this can't, like, why? Why uh, Why would he, why would that bar contact me? I applied at the American bar when I was 21. When I finished in Germany, I applied in the American bar. Um, actually, I wanted to give because nobody replied to my emails. So I went to London with my CVs and I literally sat down in front of Eric and was like, I would love to apply here for a job. And he's like, oh, unfortunately, we don't have any right now. And I was like, didn't like, didn't take my CV as well. Um, I don't think that he remembers that, but I remember that pretty well. What year was that? Do you remember? Yeah, it must have been the year when I finished my my degree in Germany. So what is that? Two... 2010 okay so right two, after the 2011 yeah. so basically when he yeah when they just when re-opened, they just reopen yeah. yeah they would reopen possibly half a year or a year by that time um so it was full team um the only job that i could have applied for is or was um waiter in in-room dining oh yeah well i did that though <laughs> yeah i applied and apparently apparently um i got a yellow flag on my test you know the Fermont test this Gallup stuff that, oh, they, yeah, that they were doing yeah. it's a different one now but like at that time they were doing this Gallup survey and apparently I got a yellow flag so they, they didn't want to interview me and I was like well that's bad that test used to be brutal as well like, oh it was it was, it of, was yeah. ridiculous and you were blocked for like two years you couldn't apl- you couldn't even try to apply yeah. again for two years I remember like you had to say either yes yes or no no yeah fully like. agree or fully disagree or anything. if you if you put anything in the middle you're out <laughs> they yeah. like people with strong opinions yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah he got he he got um me on a call um basically shocked me because i was about to sign a contract in singapore and then i was like i spoke to them to 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 the hotel where i was supposed to start working and I'm like, look, I just got like the craziest call of my lifetime. I would have to postpone that. And luckily, you know, the person I had the interview with was like, no, no, no. Like, if you get that job, you take it. Like, I can wait for another month until, you know, everything is sorted out. Oh, that's pretty cool, though. Yeah. And then I went, I went through the normal interview process, really. Um, like, every single time, every interview I had, and I think I had six or seven, every single time I was asked, why didn't you apply? Why didn't you apply? Because, like, and I was always saying the same. It's like, for me, I would, I would never think about applying for that job. Because in my, I thought, I didn't even check the website. I, I saw in the newspaper, in the news, newspaper, and I mean, online, I saw Eric's leaving. And I was like, I'm curious who's gonna, who they're going to take. Like, um, who's going to take that job? You know, um, tough one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck to that guy. Um <laughs> But I thought they have already someone because uh-huh. I, I thought, yeah, for sure. Eric gave like a two months notice, you know, they have done all the stuff and there's going to be like a handover between them. And I was like, okay, they're going to release this. And then two weeks later, they're going to release the information. Who's going to take, uh-huh. who's going to take, uh-huh. I thought this is fully, you know, this is the entire circus sort of is fully planned. Well, apparently it wasn't. Um, and yeah, that's why I never really applied. So I'm very fortunate, obviously, that um, that somebody gave me a call and that somebody was Declan. Um, and the, yeah, that obviously yeah, turned out quite positive for me. So obviously, like the, the feeling must have been incredible because now you've been there for a bit over a year, have you? Yeah, in a month. Yeah. yeah. So like, what were the challenges that you had at the very beginning, and how did you like settle in the team? I mean, the biggest challenge is to understand that place. You know, I mean, 
125 years of history alone in the bar, 130 years of the hotel. Um, you know, coming there with, I like to say, um, this sort of mentality that or oh, anything is possible, and you know, me work bef working before in bars where I came and I changed everything. I knew that I can't do that there because it will not be accepted. It won't be right as well. Um, so I had to really sort my mindset out before I came. And I think I was very quiet at the beginning. I didn't challenge anything. I asked boatloads of questions. I didn't challenge much. Um, and I just wanted to observe. I got a very... Declan made a brilliant plan for me. Um, the first three weeks, I was only um, on an introduction. So I didn't spend much time in the bar in the first three weeks. Okay. I was going through all the departments, was shadowing the managers and got getting to know everyone and did all the trainings that you have to do with Famont and so on, you know, um, to get, try to get sort of a soft start because I think in any job you start, uh, it's, it is quite overwhelming. Um, the great thing though is that everyone is so ridiculously friendly. Um, so that helps obviously. But I've noticed that's a big thing in London, to be fair. I think uh, every every hotel I worked at in London, it's you've got this immediate crazy welcome. You know, yeah. well, I've noticed that here in Asia, you have to oil the machine a little bit before you get it to work. Yeah, you know, I think that's um, that's part of culture, really. Yeah, um, you know, you have to you have to prove yourself. Mm -hmm. I think here, Indeed. for for me, the hardest one was in um, in in Bangkok in Thailand. Because their culture is, I mean, incredible, right? And I love, I love it. But, you know, start slowly because, like, I think they like to, they like to see that you work for them and with them, and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. And they want to see what's your character, and then if they approve, you know, you get the full support and all the love. Um, well, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think in in London. Um, it's the other I don't want to say the other way around but it starts very open open arms and then maybe if you have a confrontation then afterwards then it starts a bit okay well let's see how this guy is actually working uh, you know what yeah, I mean yeah yeah, yeah indeed um, yeah. so but yeah it was, was an amazing welcome and I focused really on trying to understand what the team is doing and trying to get to know the team obviously big team um, you know in a tiny space uh, and so many characters so many strong characters big personalities eh? very big personalities you know and getting to getting to grasp all of that and then coming in as this guy that nobody knew but yeah you know i think mo a lot of them would have expected um, a superstar bartender coming in and just basically leading that bar forward i think some of them were quite surprised and were a bit you know well let's see what this guy can actually do let's see who he is and yeah, at the beginning, I tried not to, not to do anything that might upset anyone, really. I guess now I'm upsetting a lot of people, but you know, it's part of the journey, I right? Passed my probation, so I'm allowed, I guess. <laughs> um, now, I obviously now it's it's you know looking into the future. Where do we want to go? Who do we want to be? And yeah, you know, the team is young. There's a lot of talent there. And, you know, shaping that team and making it one unit and, and sort of leading it into the future, that's really, that's really the goal. But, yeah, it took me, I, I like to say it took me easy 10 months to, un to grasp everything, to understand and sort of to make for myself a bit of a plan and saying, look, I think this is the next 12 months. That's going to be my direction. That's what we have to focus on. And then we see what comes next. I think, though, the fact that uh, you were relatively unknown in the European market when you picked up the position actually worked to your favor. Because I think that regardless of the person who would have replaced Eric, this person would have faced a lot of criticism if he was well-known. Not necessarily the person, but maybe the establishment. So I think, you know, getting someone that's relatively no well-known in Asia, but not as well-known in Europe, you know, probably played the... Uh, Gave you a little bit of a boost at the beginning, right? Because I think it, it just generated more curiosity rather than criticism, right? Yeah, I think um, 
like everybody was really curious and you know you get then all the all the interviews with with you know um like the drinks magazines and so on and like the questions were all the same it's like oh so who are you actually mm-hmm. <laughs> like like obviously they didn't ask that but that was basically ah. the context mm-hmm. of all the questions who are you actually yeah. like what have you achieved so far why and yeah <laughs> why are you here um so and i i think you know it makes perfectly sense to hire someone who who has no celebrity status um because in the end and this is part of my journey obviously understanding the role and understanding the bar every bartender who has started there needs to make it their own and all the head bartenders have done have done that and have made it their own and um over time that's going to be my you know my journey as well Mm -hmm. to make this bar obviously never lose who the american bar or what the american bar is because it is that, you know, that history, that culture, that, that you know, feel of classic cocktail culture. Mm-hmm. You don't want to lose that. But you also can't stand still. So you need to progress in a, in a certain way, but never, I'd say, never lose the roots and lose the ideology, I think. I think, for me at least, that's quite important. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, yeah, how to say? I don't. I don't want to go into a direction that is just not the American bar. Mm-hmm. That place has a lot of challenges because, you know, let's face it: in 125 years of history, they must have had a few years where they weren't top notch. You know what I mean? Like we all know that. And well, I think every, everything, every place has their ups and downs. Absolutely, I believe, you I know. Agreed, yeah, and and just to make sure that you go there and you continue the history, and but you just take it through another curve an upwards trajectory it's actually very challenging right yeah i mean what, what what i really look for for example when when it comes to the liquid right to the cocktails um i think personally i do appreciate if somebody makes a drink without a homemade ingredient uh you know without a homemade ingredients without rotovaping or something i mean not not that we actually have one we don't have one but like um you know you can create a delicious cocktail with all these amazing products that are nowadays on the market so, for example, on our menu now, I think we have three, four drinks that not a single homemade ingredient, and people love them. So, and I think that's so American bar style, because it is that sort of idea of a maybe classic cocktail or the twist on a classic cocktail, but it is a signature and it is you and it it fits to, it fits into the concept, it fits there. But then you have completely drinks that are completely nuts, you know, where a lot of preparation goes into it, but. If you get it in the American bar, it sort of yeah, it fits into the room. It fits into the ideology. It fits into the idea. But it's a really progressive drink, like modern flavors, using acids, um, you know. But it, it just it could also be just a classic from some time ago. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's quite special. And I think you know, I like to explain to guests that come and for the first time, you know, we explain this this idea about the the menu, about the music. The bar is so small. 70% of our guests will never see the bar. They, they, they will not see how their drink has been made. It's what it looks on the table and how does it feel when you're in the bar. What is your perspective when you sit in the low chairs or in the couches and you, know, you listen to this music and you see the room, you see your drink. That is our actual experience. So I like to, I like to think when we move now into the future that that needs to be our top focus. It needs to be the, the inclusive experience of walking down the stairs, taking a seat, not actually seeing a bar, don't see a back bar, you can't see a bottle, um, but there's magically this drink then arrives, you listen to the music, you see Johnny on the piano, and you know you just feel, yep, yeah, that's, la- that's right. Mm-hmm. And then your, um, you know, your server explains to you the story and what is our idea behind this, and that's that's the experience. I think that's the American bar experience. Like, and I don't I don't say that is the that is the correct that is the right that is how it has to be because, like, honestly, I go to Luca Cinali, and I'm just hypnotized an hour sitting in front of him, not speaking a word, and just had the best evening of my life because the guy works like a magician. That's he, crazy, he, that is yeah. nuts what yeah. he does. And um, I love that as well. And I love the drinks in Oreo that they have created, you know, um, like the, how, they, how they are presented. And, but it fits there. Mm-hmm. I just wouldn't fit in the American bar, really, I think, personally. Okay. No, I totally um, 
and you know that that's why I also say when you know when when we do sometimes a master class or something is oh you know why are your drinks looking like that so you know it has to fit and you have to know who you are and who you want to be and what's what's your guest what's your clientele yeah and you know to be completely fair uh, nowadays bartenders are experiencing with uh, are working with a lot of different flavors and techniques to extract uh, all sorts of different herbs and spices mm. and and, and w- whatnot but we live in an era where to make a drink with the bottles that you have in the bar it's probably the easiest ever because we just are we have so many products so many liquors yeah and we have so many people who are great at doing that for us then yeah. we don't need to rotov up uh, angel tears because probably there is a brand that does that and yeah. they might do it better than you can possibly do it in your bar yeah and you save so much time you know exactly like and money yeah, yeah like <laughs> you know <laughs> We um we like we're working slowly, slowly on, on some drinks for the next menu, you know, and people are coming forward with ideas and so on. And um like Angelo, one of our senior bartenders, made a drink and we, and he was like, Oh, you know, I need some I need some fruit in there. Like there needs a bit more fruitiness, a bit more kick. And I was um, you know, doing homemade ingredients, like and so on and so on. And I, I just had a tasting, somebody came along and brought me this beautiful liqueurs. And there was this mandarin liqueur. And I was like, Well, how often do you get mandarin like an actual not like a mandarin napoleon you know that that sort of old school stuff so how do you get a genuine mandarin flavor in a liqueur because you know i haven't seen it much around and that one was so good it was up just try that boom fits you know you just have to you don't have to forage ingredients you have to forage your liqueurs maybe or you have to forage your products uh-huh. that's another like you don't have to go out and pick leaves and then sous-vide them, and then afterwards rotive up them and ferment them, and then put them all together. Sometimes you just have to forage the right liquid ingredients that is already on the market. Yeah, not all uh, great drinks need to have 20 hours of prep behind yeah. them. Yeah, and you know, what I like to say is also, you know, don't never forget your classics, and never forget your classic specs, because nowadays you see a lot of unbalanced drinks as well, I mean, now that that sounds that sounds rude. I don't want to say unbalanced drinks, but where you where you think like, oh, you could have achieved possibly the same result with less, um, mm. or you know, um, techniques have been used, which I sometimes don't know why. Like for me, I'm a bit defender of that. You know, everything needs to fulfill a purpose. If you do something, or if you use a certain certain um, ingredients or item or whatsoever, does it? actually fulfill the purpose because you might maybe you're just overcomplicating stuff mm-hmm. um and getting good classic cocktails these days gets harder and harder as well indeed I well i think that's a nice thought to wrap this conversation <laughs> uh which was was awesome to talk to you uh last question i asked to everyone if you could choose your very last drink what would that drink be very last drink yes mm. I've, ha- I've had to answer that question once before oh really yeah yeah <laughs> um so you're well prepared. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know what? Uh, I would choose a drink that I just got yesterday here in your bar. Which one? Death in the afternoon. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> you know. If I'm about to die, why don't, why don't include that in, into... Uh, <laughs> that makes total sense. <laughs> <laughs> into the drink's name as well. Thank you so much for finding the time, man. It was no, awesome thank you. to talk gonna... to you. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Maxime. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.